Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Because as soon as you see something visible, like a white cane or hearing aids, people just immediately assume that you are incapable. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. My guest today is quite simply one of the most amazing people I've ever had the privilege of meeting. And I've met quite a few in the process of doing this podcast. Uh, by my privileged position of meeting patients who inspire me every single day. But Alexandra Adams is a very, very special person. She's a fourth year medical student at Cardiff University and she is the UK's first deaf and blind person training to become a doctor. She's an ex-GB athlete in both swimming and alpine skiing. She's a published poet. She's a TED talker. She's just awe-inspiring. I, like I'm, I'm speechless even now because I don't really know how to explain just how touching this podcast was to me. She's a lifelong patient of the NHS. She's been in hospital for 1.5 years as a teenager. She's had 17 admissions to an ICU since the start of medical school. She's also a victim. She's quite frankly shared her experiences of being discriminated as uh, discriminated against as a patient and as a medical student and she's a huge advocate for better patient care through empathy i um i i really thought that this podcast was going to go a different route um and what it was for me was a huge roller coaster of emotions i don't think i've laughed as much on a podcast uh i don't think i felt as angry uh i certainly haven't felt this emotional um and i i think uh it's it's going to be a journey for you guys if i'm if I would request one thing is that you you listen to this, you give it um, your utmost attention uh, and you please check out Alexandra's incredible TED Talk, um, which you can find uh, via her social media links. It's at Alexandra underscore DB Med. Uh, and she also has an incredible organization um, called Faces of the NHS, which hopes to remove the stereotypes in the NHS and she's near to complete the writing of her first book as well. So she's almost an author to add to her many accolades. And you can find her organization at Faces of the NHS. 
Um, I'm not going to talk anymore too much more about this. Uh, the only thing I'm going to say is the recipe that I cooked Alexandra, which she loved, is uh, on the YouTube channel, thedoxeskitchen.com. Please go check that out. Um, she was the last uh, podcast guest to be at the uh, studio uh, before we moved a location. Um, and uh, it was just a privilege to have her. It was also her birthday, so we, we gave her some cake at the end of the shoot, um, which is very fitting. Onto the podcast. Uh, and uh, if you like this podcast, please do give it a five star review. It really does help. Alexandra, thank you so much for coming into the kitchen no today. I'm you, excited. I, I'm, I'm excited. You are. Um, the final guest that we're going to be having here in the studio. So, and it's an absolute privilege to, to meet you and to get you here after connecting via social media. You are such a chatterbox, <laughs> <laughs> which is such a good thing. I'm going to lose I'm... my voice in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't lose your voice. Don't lose your voice. Because sometimes, you know, we get guests to come in and, like, you know, it's a new environment and, like, there's lights everywhere and there's two people behind and we've got the audio producers. But you're, like, straight into it. And uh, I love it. Your personality is exactly how I imagine. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> welcome. And it's a privilege to meet you. Um, and it's a privilege to be cooking for you as well. Exciting. We had a chat on the phone and you love experimental food you love trying new things yeah. music to my ears so for you I'm making something that I haven't made before that's exciting <laughs> it's, yeah it's exciting for me as well um, so uh, it's going to be nice and spicy um, and we're going to go in it's going to be a, a spiced chickpeas with a sarg also mm -hmm. known as uh, wilted spinach yeah. uh, some curry leaves a touch of coconut cream uh, all put yeah. together in a, in a bowl um, very simple um, the spices we're going to be using are nigella seeds, mm -hmm. um, also known as onion seeds, uh, cumin, mustard, some garam masala, hitting it with some curry leaves, a little bit of uh, red chili. You all right with the spice? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not one of those people that can literally sort of have the very top oh, spice okay, in yeah, Nando's, fine. but yeah, I, yeah. I do like a little, a little hint. I love how it. you use Nando's as the... Uh, I literally sometimes the mango and lime or lemon and herb, I'm like... <laughs> oh, okay, good to know, good to know. I think that's like the ubiquitous way in which... But no, I love, I love seasoning, so it's, yeah. Good, go all right, it. okay. Sounds I will, divine, really I will go for the mango and lime <laughs> level of spice. <laughs> Uh, cool, I'm going to crack on with this. Tell me um, a bit about how you cook at home and what kind of things that you like. Like, what's your sort of so culinary go-to? I love anything eccentric and I will literally just go into the cupboard yeah. and get everything out and just put them together and see, oh, you know, see if it works, essentially. Um, and I love, I mean, I only got Instagram a year ago, so I'm quite behind in it. Um, Such a I start making, making all my food look really, really pretty. So I'm getting the wooden slates out and you know, the wallpaper and trying to you know <laughs> and literally my friends are just dying a thousand deaths like what are you doing just eat the stuff yeah, yeah. i love it i love eccentric food um i mean i tried a little bit of veganuary i didn't i didn't last sadly but i love i mean obviously i, I told you that i do a lot of traveling yeah. and i love just trying sort of seasoning and, and, and dishes from all around the world mm, um mm. sushi Love sushi, yeah. yeah, Korean food, Japanese food. I love Korean food. Yeah. So I recently flew via Korea to um, Sydney yeah. and I had a stopover in Seoul um, and I flew Korean Airways as well, right? Yeah. So it was just 
bibbing about the whole way oh, and honestly yeah. i was in heaven i was oh. like ordering more food i was like yeah i'll have that korean version because they have like the continental version or like yeah. the you know anglo version or, or whatever the meal is and it's usually terrible mm. but the bibimbap was like so it's like oh. one of the best things i've had in the year it's really? incredible oh my yeah. goodness yeah that was so cool big fan of korean yeah. food so i remember what, i flew to um flew to thailand and i stopped over in singapore so i was on singapore airlines yeah. and i didn't realize that because this was the first time or the second time i traveled you know away on my own uh-huh. and you know you got the food and, and then they said oh do you want to try the singapore sling which is like a you know the cocktail of yeah. the country and i thought you had to pay for it so i was like oh no no i'm all right <laughs> thank you and then everyone was getting these singapore slings i was thinking what am i missing out and then i realized that you i could have got it for free and i was totally regretting it for my entire trip <laughs> so i absolutely made sure i went to go and get a singapore sling when i was in the country but um oh my gosh did it make it up was, did it, it uh, oh, yes, did it, it was, deliver it was good i had it on a beach so perfect. <laughs> are you gonna be given anything on the beach it'll be fine yeah yeah but yeah so i i, I love all food Ruby, honestly um i've actually recently because i love winter i love autumn and winter and, and sort of making really hot stews and curries and yeah. just feeling really homely and i made this um black rice porridge with oh. coconut milk and stewed apple and and cinnamon and it was honestly it was so good That's and then incredible. of course like me being me i got some rose petals as well <laughs> just to make it look pretty <laughs> and my, my my friends were just like how much do you spend on these flowers <laughs> i'm just like you know it's part of a dish i think rose petals in particular deserve uh, uh um uh priority because they don't it's not just about the way they look they mm. do impart some incredible flavor yeah that aroma I that agree. beautiful sweetness yeah. with the apple as well oh it's totally. incredible yeah yeah i'm gonna get you to advise on my next books it's <laughs> <laughs> clearly you got the visuals down as well oh. as the flavors as well and i Black do photography rice. as well so oh, there, you yeah. there you go right yeah. <laughs> you've got multiple impressions <laughs> talking of multiple impressions you've you've had an incredible experience doing sport as well as your more academic stuff now how yeah. did you get into swimming and and your, your most recent passion now skiing mm. so with my swimming i think i kind of fell into it naturally because my dad was a swimmer at national level oh, wow, okay. my mum was a gymnast believe it or not <laughs> she saw, you saw her at the I saw her, yeah. she's definitely got a height for gymnasts yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely yeah oh gosh um, but yeah so quite a sporty family oh, and wow. um and so i kind of grew up with it and then being deafblind, someone did come up to me one day and said, oh, have you ever considered swimming for the disability team? I said, oh, you know, I, I didn't realise that there was, you know, sort of a thing, you know. Um, and believe it or not, sort of, I went to my first national championships in Sheffield when I was 11. 11. I came away with five gold and one silver. Oh, my God. So that was, that was pretty cool. And then from there, I was kind of talent spotted and ended up on the GB team. And wow. it quickly became my life. So I was training twice a day, every single day, land training. Um, in between, I was going to school and yeah. doing my homework. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, I permanently smelt of chlorine. Yeah. <laughs> and the house smelt of chlorine as well. And then my sister picked it up as well, that <laughs> she was swimming. So that was our life. And I, I can just remember spending many birthdays and whatnot at the swimming pool. Yeah. It, was, it was just, we were, we were living there, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then, unfortunately, I, I was getting really bad. I had really bad asthma. Mm. And I also had really bad reflux. Mm. And when I was swimming, it was kind of really, it was triggering sort of these respiratory episodes. And um, so I ended up sort of being blue lighted to A&E every single night after mm. training. And so I turned into this like 
all year round Christmas turkey because they literally just be like sending me in an ambulance in like tin foil <laughs> in a swimming costume. And it was just like, this isn't a life, it really isn't. Um, so I went for elective surgery, um, stomach surgery, yeah. and it was meant to be pretty straightforward. Long story short, it went very wrong. Um, I They damaged the vagus nerve, so oh, wow. I could no longer swallow, um, could no longer eat. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, so I went down like three stone. And um, I ended up having 20 stomach surgeries in that year. Oh, my word. Um, I, had two, I had a feeding tube put into the stomach and to the small intestine. And, and yeah, and so that by that point, obviously, swimming was, was over. And, and then, obviously, at that time, I was of school leaving age. Mm-hmm. Um, so I couldn't go back to school. Um, so I had to... And at that point, I knew that I wanted to be a doctor because, obviously, of my experiences of being a patient mm-hmm. for so long. How old were you at that time? So I was 16 or 16 okay. and a half. So I was fairly young. Um, but unfortunately, where the hospital I was based at was... Um, so when you're 16, you're classed as an adult, mm. where somewhere else, you know, you might be still on a paediatric ward. Mm. So I was on this surgical ward surrounded by um, sort of much elderly patients. And at times it was really, it was really isolating. And I remember sort of for at least two months, I was the only patient on the bay that didn't have dementia. Oh, wow. And so every single night sort of, you know, all the best and the patient oh, would be screaming yeah. out, oh, the police are here or, you know, going yeah. through their list of vegetables. and. And I just could not sleep. I mean, it's great because I'm hearing impaired. I can just switch my own ears <laughs> off and I don't hear anything. So, but in all fairness, it was a really, um, it was a tough year and a half. Um, I mean, I don't remember a lot because I was, I was on a morphine pump. At one point I was on an epidural because I was in so much oh pain. Word, yeah. um, so I was kind of knocked out with all the drugs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I came out and couldn't go back to the school that I was at and I ended up having to enroll at a blind school which was residential and um, I was there for three years just just over three years and it was really good it it, it changed me as a person um, so before I was very sort of dependent not, I didn't have a lot of confidence wouldn't go into a shop on my own um, to buy a chocolate bar or whatever wouldn't get on a bus on my own and then within the first year of this going to this new school I was on a plane to Africa oh, alone wow. and so I'd literally changed like changed as a person and yeah. it was great but academically it was sadly I think we were put into a, a bubble not in a bad way but I think people wanted to protect us and they didn't they didn't think that we could maybe achieve as much as we could mm-hmm. um, so was that because of the assumption that because of your disability yeah. you're limited yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. so we were it would always mar- like we weren't pushed we weren't pushed to right. To achieve high, um, because I guess they just didn't want to have us hurt in, yeah. in society, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, the stereotypes. Um, you can so under- almost uh, empathise with their the thinking behind that, even though mm. I don't agree with it. You can mm. you sort of understand it probably wasn't coming out of uh, it may have not come from a position of um, uh, negative. Uh, no, they just not don't at want to all. Set you up for failure. Yeah. 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 It yeah. was it was not malicious at all, and you know they really really cared for us. I mean the school that at the time I was there there was only sixty students, so we were like a family. Yeah. It was it was wonderful, but when I said, "Hey, I want to do medicine," they just laughed. Really? And they said, Alexandra, you, you can't do it, be a doctor because you're, you're deaf blind. Yeah. Don't be so ridiculous. And 
obviously I've had stubborn on the school report every single year since about four <laughs> yeah. and so I was still stubborn at this point so what did I do I, I went the complete opposite end and, and decided to apply to, to medical school but and what, uh, what age was that? It was 17, so I was 18 okay. when I started this school and uh -huh. came out when I was 20, 21 Gotcha. And uh, so I was a bit older, but they allowed students on for a little bit longer because of the residential um, setup. And I had to, because the class, you know, saying that there were 60 students, the class sizes were ranging from one to three mm. students per class. Mm. Um, and I can just remember in my biology class, it was only two of us. And um, I essentially, the teachers weren't, um, I don't want to say equipped, but they just, because they weren't expecting people to sort of take on A-levels and, and go off to university, mm. they didn't really teach us. So I essentially said to the school, look, I want to go to medical school and the only way of me doing this is for me to, to work hard and get my A-level grades. And so I said, look, put me on the exam board or the exam, yeah. um, I will get some textbooks and I will go away and teach myself. So essentially, in my spare time, I taught myself three A-levels, and honestly, it was it was testing at times. I mean, having gone from being bedridden in hospital for a year and a half and, you know, completely relying on my parents at home yeah. to moving away, doing my own washing, shopping, cleaning, everything, ironing, and teaching myself A-levels completely by myself it was literally just mind-blowing at some point but I, it was a great life my mind lesson. is blown right now <laughs> if, I, if I didn't have uh, <laughs> if I didn't have respect for you now this has gone to a whole nother level like teaching myself A-levels from scratch after having such a trauma traumatising experience in hospital being told that you don't have the potential to go into medical school you, it, you have to overcome so many barriers. I'm so glad you're such a stubborn person. <laughs> I, I think it's a good thing at times. It really is. Oh, I mean, definitely. Because if I wasn't yeah. stubborn, I would not be where I am today, really. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think that stage in my life was a, it was a, it was a game changer. Mm. It really changed my life without mm. saying, sounding cliche. It mm. was really um, taught me a lot of lessons and it, it threw me into the big wide world. It was almost like a brick in the face, but in a, a nice brick. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, oh. Tell me about Africa. Um, I don't think I've heard that before. What did you do over there? So, pardon? What, uh, tell me about Africa. What was going oh, on? Oh, so that was, that was really good. I, so I did a, a GAP medics placement, um, and I'd heard of it. You know, it was, it was an opportunity to get work experience in a hospital, and it was fantastic. And, you know, it was funny because I was almost half expecting the doctors to go, oh, you're visually and hearing impaired, uh, we don't know what to do, which is what has happened as a medical student. Mm. But out there, they were like, oh, come over and do this, come yeah. over and do that. And uh, I did all sorts of procedures, you oh, know, really <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. Oh, but you know what, it was so funny. I, um, I didn't really, because we had to take smart clothes out there, you know, for placement. Oh. And it wasn't until the second week that I was walking down the slope in hospital and I, was, I had a bit of a limp. And I looked down and I've got two completely different shoes on. <laughs> one's blue, one's black, one's got a heel, one's flat, one's got a bow and one's got a buckle. And I'm thinking, I've worn these shoes for two weeks and no one, no one has told me. Now I thought they've either not told me because they haven't noticed or they haven't told me because they don't want to offend me because yeah. they think it's a visual impairment thing. 
me thinking it was the latter, I then went to everyone and said, oh, look, you know, I got two different shoes on, (laughs) thinking, no big deal, I'll just go back to my room and change my shoes. These were the only shoes I'd brought to Africa with me. So I was like this trendsetter, (laughs) wearing odd shoes for the entire trip. (laughs) It was... It was so bad. Did the kids start tr- copying it or something? It I can imagine it becoming like a viral thing, like especially nowadays on like TikTok. You never like know. That. Yeah, I you might never have know. To go back and be like, oh yeah, back. you're wearing different shoes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But no, brilliant. it was a great experience. I it feel was. like you could write a book in all the calamities yeah. that you were talking about. Some of them earlier, to, uh, earlier before we jumped on the pod about the different things that you've had to endure and stuff, and just the yeah. fact that you could laugh about it as well. <laughs> just it, it's always a defence uh, mechanism, I think, as well. Like the, the fact that you can. Uh, overcome adversity with humor uh is brilliant yeah and do you know what i just love i love not not purposely putting myself in these situations but i love looking back and going do you know what actually that was really funny yeah yeah, yeah. the number of times i've got lost on my travels i mean i got lost in a forest both in america and in hong kong i tell you the hong kong story i decided to go i wanted to go see see Victoria Peak. I say see like I can't I can't see it but just to take a load of photos and put them up on Facebook or whatever and I wanted because being me just trying to be different I wanted to take an alternative route Uh so instead of taking the tram up I decided to go to this kind of you know out of the blue neighborhood nothing stops you does it honestly like (laughs) so anyway I went looking for this staircase um, which I read about on a blog and um, I couldn't find it and I was walking along this road and I came across this like ladder which I later found out was a typhoon shelter thing but I thought it was this staircase that they were talking about so there's me with my white cane just climbing up this ladder and then all of a sudden I'm in this like the undergrowth I'm thinking okay like keep positive I'm probably going to find the view at the end of this uh, not that I'm going to see this this view. So I'm walking, and then all of a sudden, you know, when you're in a forest, if you've ever been in a forest, yeah, yeah, you look around yeah, yeah. and you go, "Oh dear, which way did I come? <laughs> yeah. There was no path whatsoever." So I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh!" Um, so I carried on walking, and then my cane is a ball, uh, a ball at the end of it, mm. and it rolls over when you're kind of going over like an edge. And everywhere I put it, it was going over the edge. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm on a cliff of some sort with all these trees and, you know, didn't, and at the time I didn't have any mosquito spray on and everything. I was literally being nibbled. Um, So I'm thinking, right, I need to get down. So I sat down and I slid off the side of this edge, eventually sort of ducking all these branches, got to the bottom and I'm thinking, phew. And then I realized I'm surrounded by this like really high metal fence. And I didn't know whether it was electric or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I found this little hole about this big down there between like, a bramble like a bush, foot big or something, literally yeah. like a little broken hole. And yeah. I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to like just get on my to my my stomach. And so I wriggled out of this little hole. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, thank you know, thank goodness. And um, I thought, yeah, I'm at the bottom. Carried on walking, and my cane rolls over another oh, edge, and I hear cars. I'm thinking, oh, civilization at last. Because I genuinely thought I, I videoed myself, you know, saying just you, in case search and rescue find me. Yeah. At that point, yeah. that was the first time I'd ever done this. <laughs> And so I'm thinking, right, now I'm going to have to sit down again and slide down this edge. And then I found myself on the hard shoulder of the motorway. 
What? Yeah. <laughs> and all these cars are like going beep, and she's like, what is this blind person doing on the motorway? And literally, and I thought, maybe I should go back into the woods. And there's me trying to climb up the bank and the soil. Was... Oh, and so I had to literally like do the walk of shame down the motorway no for about way. 15 minutes until I found a T-junction, crossed the road, and I went back into the, uh, the subway. Oh my God, Alexandra, <laughs> honestly. I almost I burnt my food here because <laughs> I was so engrossed in this cooking. story. <laughs> I love the food there. It's yeah, 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 I'm sure you do. <laughs> honestly, you could write a book about the the, the adventures of Alexandra. Honestly, <laughs> I, I am. I I'm literally. It. I'm writing a book, so I'm very nearly finished. And, yeah. You know, my friends have always told me, "Oh, you're like Bridget James, the yeah. real life," and, and actually. <laughs> I could completely relate to every single scene in the Bridget Jones movies. Yeah, I would yeah. love to meet Bridget Jones someday. Yeah, I really yeah, would. Yeah. Um, but no, so I am writing a book. It, it's more about a memoir of being a, a deafblind medical student. Mm. But I do. I talk about my experiences as a patient, um, my sporting background, um, and I talk about my travels and yeah. the, the plavas I get into in the, yeah. in the process. Because I think it's funny, you know. It's totally. oh, I, I think, like, like I said, it's, it's how you cope. And mm. we cope with humour. We cope with, like, telling stories the narrative mm. and everything else and I can't wait to get into that actually uh, yeah, in the yeah. podcast let me take you back to the recipe yes, that I nearly do, ruined do. because I was so <laughs> engrossed at what you were chatting about uh, I so, mean it smells delicious good, I'm so glad I'm so it's glad um, so this is uh, just to recap Nigella seeds mustard seeds cumin or yeah. all cooked down in a little bit of oil I've used olive but you can use other nut oils yeah. um, the chickpeas that are already uh, from a can I've just drained them I would cook them from scratch but sometimes it takes a bit a while or it does take a while <laughs> curry leaves which is the secret ingredient for an authentic yeah. sort of Punjabi um, uh, or Indian dish yeah. um, the spinach that I've put in wilted already and the, uh, the way I wilt it is just in a saucepan mm. lid on mm. no oil no extra water just let it wilt and then move it around the pan and okay. then take it off and for that's how it. long around five to six minutes okay. and then you just soak up uh, the excess water on a yeah. kitchen towel and then you have a beautiful sort of spinach thing that just that combines wonderfully yeah, and i'm really just gonna prop this on the side here that looks stunning traditionally what we would do yeah. is serve this with a little bit of yogurt on the side okay, um yeah. but uh i'll just le serve it like this for now so yeah. you can have a smell and a taste. I'll give you a, a spoon. It, oh, it looks incredible. It really does. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm really... <laughs> I, like I said, you know, I love sort of... I need to get my phone and take... Oh, this yeah, is going yeah. on the Instagram. Oh, really 100%. Is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely going on the gram for sure, mate. For sure. I'll go on YouTube, gram, the whole works. How was your lunch? <laughs> it was amazing. It took me so long, but I obviously I just speak so long. And I, I've never had was... a guest that's enjoyed the lunch so much to the point where you dragged out the eating. I'm <laughs> just enjoying, savoring every single bite. Honestly, it was pleasure really so for good. someone who's cooked the food who enjoys, you know, pleasing other people through food. Uh, it's the best compliment. So thank you, thank you, Rupi. No, it's just, it's just, and for me, like I was saying earlier, being visually and hearing impaired, like. Just eating food is just so, it's just, it's it's so sensual, isn't it? It is like literally you, to every mouthful, you really like pay attention to what you're tasting, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're. And it's just oh, it was beautiful. It was yeah. divine. Because so. I, I was I was Thank quite you. surprised considering you've had so many operations on your gut mm. and uh, you've had 
peg feeding, you've had to have like, you know, a slow transition from liquid diet to mm-hmm. something that a lot more with a lot more variety. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would see eating as like a chore or something that brings back a lot of bad memories, but mm-hmm. not so for you. I'm, I was really desperate to get back to, to a normal diet, but obviously it was just not knowing how long it would take for the vagus nerve to, to repair itself. I mean, I still struggle with some foods um and i do have an element of gastroparesis now but it's just it's just being mindful of how i eat when i eat what i eat but still being able to enjoy it um so i make sure that i have dinner fairly early so 5 30 6 30 rather than sort of late at night um and it's the whole sort of little more often rather than like huge meals um in one go but it doesn't mean that you can't you can't enjoy stuff i mean I really did not like Ensure drinks. They're just, oh gosh, nutritional drinks are disgusting. And I can just remember actually a few months ago, um, we had like a, a teaching session at the medical school and they were like, oh, does anyone want to try the Ensure drinks? Like they've got all these like variety of flavors and everyone was getting so excited. And there was me in my chair thinking, you have no idea. No idea, exactly. <laughs> and like when you have to tell your patient, oh, there's really, they're really yummy. Like, you know, I recommend this one. And I'm literally saying it through gritted teeth because actually they are the most revolting things i have ever tasted um so yeah and actually i do have a garage full of them just in case i have a bad flare-up or anything and then just like oh no they just yeah the stocks don't go down because i just avoid them at all costs yeah and for the listeners just describe a bit about gastroparesis and what that means for you so essentially it just means that i could have i could eat a normal meal and then you know, I will be really sick, but it won't be sort of 20 minutes, an hour later. It will literally be seven or eight hours later. So as, as gruesome as it sounds, I could be having chicken for lunch and then sort of at one o'clock the next morning, I could be vomiting amongst the chicken. And it doesn't happen all the time, but it's when I have bad flare-ups. Um, it's just, it's exhausting um, and it, it kind of makes you feel really giddy as well because your sugars go up and down. Like they really sort of... Yeah, it's and it's quite a challenge because when I'm on placement, you never know when you're going to have a good day or a bad day. Um, and then you're thinking, oh, you know, should I should I eat something or should I wait till I get back? Maybe I don't want to be ill this afternoon. So there's all these things that you have to take into account. Um, and sometimes it is really it's really bothersome. But it's just all a complication resulting from all the surgeries. And I've just had to accept that that's happened and just have to live with it really but like I said you know it doesn't stop me from enjoying food um, cooking eating and this is why I just think you're going to be the most incredible doctor when you eventually qualify in the next couple of years because you can identify so much with patient journeys you are clearly eloquent and smart enough to do the job and the day-to-day but people don't realize that medicine isn't about the ability to uh, suture up a laceration mm. or you know perform a surgery it's that emotional connection when you're sat in front of someone and you're trying to empathize yeah. and through you know your disastrous experiences you can uh, you can really do that to a level that most other doctors would never be able to mm, mm, and yeah. it's like seeing that sort of positive uh, aspect of your your journey over this time I just think it would be crazy of anyone to think that you couldn't be the the most incredible doctor, particularly as you're going to go into palliative uh, care. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, palliative care is, and you've really hit the nail on the head there because it is. It's one of those fields that it's all about giving empathy and actually sitting down with your patients and treating them as people. You know, working with their families, and I think having 
experienced being a patient so many times, I totally get, like, for me, I know what's important, um, what I expect from a doctor, and it's not necessarily, uh, you know, explain to me my blood test results mm. or this is what the scan shows. It's about sitting down and literally just taking a few extra minutes to treat me like anybody else. And it's that common sort of relation that you have with any other human being. Um and yeah, I do think that my personal experiences of, of being a patient has, has helped this. I mean, you know, I, I remember when I was in hospital for a year and a half, every single day I'd have these this big ward round of doctors come around and it was almost like the end of the bed was like this invisible line. Yeah. No one would cross this invisible line. No one would look up and they'd all look down at the notes and mumble amongst themselves and, and I'd be in bed like, hello, you know, <laughs> like what's going yeah. on? Yeah. Um, and then they'd move on to the next patient yeah. and I was alone. I was isolated. I was scared. Um, and obviously being hearing impaired as well, that was another barrier in itself because I didn't want to sort of say excuse me I didn't hear um, knowing that they're rushed off their theatre that is but then there was this one junior doctor that came back and she just said three really important words to me and she just said are you okay and I burst into tears and I said no and that was the first time someone had asked me that question in like six or seven months of me being in that bed and um, and I said no I'm not okay I'm, I'm really scared I don't know what's going on and she just got up and closed the curtains around she said I know how you feel. And she literally lifted up her blouse and she showed me this huge scar along her ribs. And it turns out that this doctor had been in hospital for a long time at a similar age to me. So she knew what I was going through. But she also taught me that right now she was giving me empathy and that I would have tons of empathy to give to my future patients. And a few months ago, I was on a ward round. And again, we were I was at the very back because there's this supposed hierarchy as a medical yeah. student where you're at the very, very back. It's a weird hierarchy, um, isn't it? Because you, uh, oh. you, you almost fall in line. Like, okay, the yes. song goes there and then the registrar's there and then you're there and then you're behind the computer Literally. and you're taking notes and you're running after them, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I was at the very back and um, couldn't really see or hear the patient, but I just had this, I can't describe it, but I just had this instinct, this like seventh sense of, you know, uh, this patient isn't happy, something's going on. But again, we were at the miserable line and, and no one's really looking up at the patient. And uh, and then we move on. And I'm thinking, oh. And at this point, actually, um, I decided to make my way to the very, you know, front of the crowd. And I just said to the doctor who was leading the, the consultation, I just said, look, could you speak a little bit louder because I'm hearing impaired? And unfortunately, and this is one of many of the discriminations I've had, mm-hmm. um, just kind of looks at me up and down and going, walked away and said to his colleague, how do you expect an invalid like her to run the NHS? Now, I heard that. I could have gone up to the doctor and said, excuse me, I I heard what you said about me, but I chose not to. I stayed behind and I went back to the other patient that I just had this instinct about. Mm. And I went up to her and I just said, are you okay? And she burst into tears and she said, no, I'm not. And so I did exactly the same as what this junior doctor had done to me. I got up, I drew the curtains round and I just said, I know how you feel because this patient had recently come down onto the ward from intensive care. Mm. And to date, I've had 17 admissions to intensive care as a patient. So I totally, yeah, 17, it's it's crazy. I'm actually embarrassed at the number, it's it's, it's quite bad. But um, but yeah, it really, it was really satisfying to be able to 
tell this patient that it's all okay like I'm here right now and I'm I'm so much better than what I was um so eventually with time she will get to that stage too um and just to see her smile all it took was just a few more minutes just to say that and actually I realized at that point I didn't need any vision or hearing for that. I didn't need any blood test results in front of me. I didn't need any scans. All I needed was to sit down and tell this patient that it was all going to be okay. And and I do, I say this, and this is my little tagline, but I might not have as much eyesight as most people, but I have more insight than many. And you're so right in saying that it is, it's empathy. Empathy is really, really important mm. in medicine. Mm. I think most people see medicine and it's very, very reductionist and naive to think that what we do as doctors is dole out pills or mm. perform surgery or do some other sort of intervention that involves something physical or reading a, a lab result. The majority of what I do and this extends to A&E as well, is have meaningful conversations where you establish rapport and you try and get to the uh, sometimes emotional distress as well as the physical distress. Mm-hmm. And to do that as a doctor requires empathy. And if you've ever been a patient, which you've obviously uh, been a patient for a long time and you've had a lot of uh, traumatous experiences, I've had that experience as well and I had my own heart issues and stuff. You you understand the vulnerability and how embarrassing it is yeah. to be a patient, to be yeah. at the end of the bed. I, I've told this story before on the podcast, but one of the most... Um, eye-opening experiences for me wasn't being hooked up to the cardiac uh, monitor wasn't having all the investigations it was simply uh, being wheeled from the cardiac unit to the x-ray department Mm. to have my chest x-ray through the corridor in the middle of the day Mm. and I was in my pajamas I had the porter I had the nurse with me who had to transport me with the cardiac monitor and people weren't looking at me. It wasn't like I was being stared at. Yeah. But I felt like I was oh, being yeah. stared at. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And that will never, ever leave me because mm. I know what it's like to be in the bed at that time. Mm. And if you can if you can tap into that as a as anything, as a health professional, um, you will become a, an incredible medical practitioner mm. because you understand at a, at a much deeper level what really medicine involves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it makes you it makes you realise that you are so vulnerable mm. as a patient, and you you can't exactly do anything about it because you can't just get up and, mm. and go places. You you are kind of you're almost relying on everybody else around you to do things for you when mm. you're so not used to that. Mm. Um, and I totally when you when you said that going in the corridor and in the bed in your pajamas, I I totally empathise and actually. I have been in the hospital as a patient a lot where I'm a medical student. So I see my colleagues as who then become my doctors, my medical student friends become the medical students who are taking my history. And, and honestly, sometimes it can be so, oh, just mm. it is, it's embarrassing, but it exposes you to the real world. And I mean, I guess this again sounds a bit gross, but I remember in one of my ICU admissions, I was literally... I was really delirious, um, but it was kind of the the phase where I was gradually coming out of the delirium. Mm. So I was vaguely aware of what was going around me. Mm. Um, but I can remember just having awful, awful runs, awful runs. And they just said, just go. And I just remember lying in the bed and literally just 
the, the feeling of feces coming all the way up to mm. like you know my chest mm. and honestly if i was with it yeah. i would be absolutely yeah. dying with embarrassment but honestly i was so ill i just didn't care but listening back to that it's just oh it was yeah but it imagine. makes you realise that, you know, when a patient goes, well, I really don't want to use a commode, I don't want to use a bedpan, I totally get why. Yeah. I totally understand. Rather than, oh, don't be silly, you know, yeah. it's, it's fine. 100%. You need to be able to sit down and say, look, I've had this really embarrassing experience. I mean, back when I was a patient on for that year and a mm. half, I can remember, I was bedridden for most of the time, mm. um, but I can remember before having an epidural in, I um, was put onto a commode and I literally had nothing on, not even a gown. For, for the listeners, a commode is like a portable toilet. Yes, so the, it's basically, the, yes, yeah. and it's got like a, it's like a chair almost and you just sit on it and, mm-hmm. and they take the, 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 the box away. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I had nothing on and the nurse had forgotten to put the brakes on. Oh, no. And so I was literally so weak at this point, I literally heaved myself into this commode and out I go. Oh, no. <laughs> wheeling into the middle of the corridor. <laughs> I mean, I was on the surgical ward, but at the time, like four out of the five patients had dementia. So I really hope that they don't literally remember. What they, they won't saw. remember but, that. Um, <laughs> but for me, with the doctor seeing through the window and everything, and as a young 16-year-old girl, yeah. I couldn't have been so more embarrassed, honestly. it was um, Alexander, the number of stories you've got, honestly. Like, <laughs> we still need to go back to the Tanzania story as well. But oh, like, but you, just, you just pull out all these stories again and again. and like, just, I've been like... You know, we're in good humour, chatting to you about this for the last couple of hours now. I just can't believe how many you've got. It's yeah, it's crazy. It's honestly, howlers. where do you want me to start? I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, with Tanzania, it was because that was my oh, first ever. Okay. That was <laughs> that was my first ever trip. I mean, I was saying to you earlier over dinner that I, you know, before I went to this blind school, I was literally so dependent on my my parents and I didn't have any confidence I wouldn't go anywhere on my own wouldn't even take the bus and then within my first year of going to this school I was gallivanting around the world on my own um but oh my goodness Tanzania was was so funny so as I was explaining now I excuse if it's rude I'm so sorry but I was on placement and and the doctors were amazing they really they really tried to get me involved, you know, despite my disabilities. And they would go, oh, Alexandra, come over and do this and come over and do that. And I had a week in internal medicine and a week in surgery. And I was in surgery and the, the doctor came up to me and said, oh, Alexandra, do you want to come over and do this circumcision? Now, at the age of that, then I had never heard of the word circumcision before because I'm quite a naive person yeah. at this point. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, really want to get involved. Like a key medical student. Yeah, yeah, Literally. Yeah. And I, yeah. And um, so they scrubbed me up and put me in my gown and put my mask on. And then I realised evidently what I was about to do. And I was like oh okay um and for this i think this patient um was having recurrent infection uh-huh. so it was for, for medical purpose yeah. and um so yeah he literally the doctor you know told me what to do but the funny thing was was that the other students who were doing the procedures in the other room were doing it at arm's width like any other surgeon would but me being visually impaired i was literally like an inch oh, okay. away <laughs> And this poor patient was only under local anaesthetic. <laughs> so he was completely aware that there was this blind, untrained, not even medical student at this point, operating on his penis. <laughs> and I was just like, 
mumble. I kept putting my thumbs up and I felt so bad for him. But you know, it was so funny because I was genuinely convinced that this doctor would be like, no, you can't do this. You're visually impaired. But he encouraged me. In fact, he said I had a really steady hand and he told me to come back and do the other patient's procedures. And I was like, oh my goodness. So anyway, the story continues. I I went away um, on a safari weekend, um, you know, just to kind of like wind down or offer placement. And on the, the side of the safari park where you know, there are cottages where we're all staying and the cottages are each named after an animal local to that area. And knowing my luck, my cottage was called Dick Dick Cottage. <laughs> and honestly, I told you this was rude. <laughs> I had no idea what a Dick Dick was. So obviously I went around asking what it was. And apparently it's this kind of... Um, it's kind of like a like a kangaroo. It's a, it's an animal that, that jumps, and you know I'd never heard of it before. And I thought, oh great! And anyway, had a fantastic weekend. And you know, fast forward to home, I had to I couldn't take the bus with everyone else, and it was a nine hour drive to the airport um, because my flight was at a funny time. So the program manager had offered to take me personally in his car to the airport and I thought oh my goodness that's so kind of you. And his three other brothers were also going to the airport. But it wasn't until it was like four hours in that I realised that I was in the back of a jeep in the middle of a desert with four men I didn't really know. Yeah. Um, but it was fine. It was fine. And then we um, and then we we stopped and we were literally in the middle of nowhere. And one of the brothers in the front he got out and he was just facing you know the horizon, sort of back to me, sort mm. of thing. And um, obviously he was having a a toilet break. Okay. Yeah. But be, me being visually impaired, I. I couldn't quite see that um so i thought he was admiring the view so i go what a lovely view (laughs) and then the brothers look at me like you're a bit weird like anyway so i'm just looking around completely oblivious whilst this the guy's on his toilet break literally within my full vision you know what i had and um anyway so i saw a few zebra sort of like potter around and then for me i can only see shapes um from a distance Uh I saw this thing like jumping up and down in the background and I said, oh look, it's a dick dick <laughs> whilst he was on his toilet break, <laughs> honestly. And they literally must have thought I was so rude. <laughs> and then I needed a toilet break and me being like a sensor, I'm so sorry. I love stories just carry on and on. I'm so gullible. I'm so naive. And literally I was like, when we get to the next service station, can can I please stop so I can go to the toilet? And they said, yeah, sure. They don't have service stations in Tanzania, literally. And um, so it was another four hours until we stopped. And we stopped in this, like, lorry park. Uh-huh. It was not, like, you know, the usual toilets you'd expect in sort of the Western world. Mm. And anyway, they dropped me off and they pointed me to, to where the toilets were. And it was literally this this hole in the floor... And there wasn't even a door mm. to sort of shield you. It's literally just kind of like a a barred gate, if you like. And anyway, I'm I'm sort of getting used to this whole crouching down thing. Yeah. But honestly, it was so hard to relax, and yeah. I was desperate for yeah. the toilet. And I wasn't I wasn't wearing a skirt, which is probably the most inconvenient of things. So anyway, I'm I'm squatting for at least five minutes. Come on, come on, come on! I just need to go. I'm desperate. Please relax. And then just as just about as I was going to go. The guy, the driver, called, Alexandra, are you okay in there? And literally lost my nerve altogether and literally wet myself. And oh, it went no. everywhere. Oh, no. <laughs> 
and I had to waddle out back into this lorry park in front of all these people with a clearly very dark patch, like oh, no. soaking through my trousers. And I had to sit in that that the poor guy's car for like oh, another God. few hours. So I eventually got on the plane and scathed, but oh my yes. goodness, it was. <laughs> But literally, I'm not joking. Every time I go traveling, I get myself into a plaza. Like in America, I am... So this again was another spur of the moment thing. I decided that I was just going to go on a mission and find some blind and deaf doctors because I I think at that point I'd got to the end of another year in medical school where I was experiencing discrimination and people weren't really approved approving of you know me me studying medicine essentially what year was this and so this was the end of year two okay um so i decided again within a few days booked flights um managed to find these these doctors all across america and said look can i come and shadow you for a few days Mm. you know learn how you know how you do it what you do Mm. and it was honestly the most eye-opening excuse the pun (laughs) eye-opening experience ever and um anyway i uh I only had one day off Uh and this was when I was in San Francisco. So I decided to explore the area and of all things, I decided to go whale watching. Whale watching? Whale watching. I mean, what visually impaired person (laughs) goes whale watching? (laughs) But it's fine. I hopped onto a boat into the Pacific and spent a day, you know, well, everyone, and it's so interesting because everyone else on that boat was being seasick. They were vomiting overboard. But with my hearing impairment, we found actually a few years ago that my balance organs are fused together, which would explain why I can't stand on one leg. Right. But I think it must affect my ability to not be car sick and seasick. So I was the only person sat in there like smiling away, like, ooh, this is a great trip. (laughs) Everyone else was literally going green. (laughs) But when I got off the boat um, after my little... Whale watch. Whale there were no whales. Whale watching tour. I decided to go because it's really famous um, for the redwoods uh-huh. and the sequoias. I can't, I can't uh, the, say uh, it. The s- trees. Sequoras? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And so I decided that I was going to go and uh, look at these trees. Again, it was very visual. Um, but you know, yeah. me wandering around with a white cane, it was absolutely mm. fine. Mm. And I remember going up to this. So I got into an Uber and it was almost like we went over this sort of, not a mountain, but it was in the middle of nowhere, essentially. It was a forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd got to the entrance, which was literally just this wooden cabin. Um, and I said, do you have um, tactile maps? Mm-hmm. So because I can't see the normal ones, I said, do you have any you know, for me to access as a visually impaired person? They said, no, but if you just stay on like the wooden path, mm-hmm. you'll be fine. It just goes all the way round and back. I said, okay, no problem. But me being so fascinated by these, like, honestly, these beautiful giants, yeah. within 15 minutes of walking, I suddenly realised, because this is how in the clouds I become, I suddenly realised I was walking up this muddy bank and I had completely gone off course right. and I was no longer on this wooden path. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm lost. I mean, this this is like this Hong Kong story all over yes. again. Mind you, this happened before Hong Kong. So okay, I think I just right. have a habit of getting yeah, stuck yeah. in forests. You didn't learn your lesson. Um, <laughs> but I thought I saw someone and I said to them, I said, Look, I'm so sorry, I'm visually impaired. I've got a little bit lost. Um, do you know which way to go? Mm. And obviously I didn't get a response because it was a tree trunk. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I had to carry on walking, and eventually I got back onto the path, okay, and um, yeah. 
and uh, got to the exit. And then I went back up to this wooden hut, you know, and I, I really wanted to say, you really should get some tactile maps out, yeah, you know, yeah. for people like me. But I don't know whether they have many blind people walking around <laughs> forests, you know, so maybe not. Unaided. And, and, uh, exactly. Yeah, without company. Of, exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I said, look, you know, is there, is there Wi-Fi? Because I need to book an Uber. Mm. And they just laughed at me because we were literally in the middle of nowhere. Of course, there wasn't going to be Wi-Fi. So I said, like, is there a taxi rank? And they were like, no. And I said, is it walkable? And they really laughed at me then. And I was like, okay, clearly not. <laughs> yeah. But thing is, everyone else who had come to this national forest mm. had come on those sort of um, multiple day tours. Uh-huh. So they were all on sort of booked on coaches. And obviously I couldn't get on a coach because I wasn't part of any mm. tour. Um, so I essentially just started walking down the road and I... I never done this in my life before and obviously you've got to be so careful yeah my only option was to hitchhike and i literally just uh, and you know it was it was an adventure i wouldn't have told my parents there and then um, but it was and i actually ended up sort of being blessed and driven down back to the harbor salsalito which is beautiful yes by a a family from washington and they were just they were so nice and they were so understanding i think they'd obviously driven there themselves there so uh, so i managed to get out of that one (laughs) <laughs> and then when I flew off, so I was in Salsalito and um, I was staying with some friends of a friend for those two days that I was in the area. Mm. And I thought oh, it would be really, really nice to um, to buy them some flowers to say thank you. And I didn't realise that the, fl- the florist at the shop was mm. shut and uh, like as in closed. Yeah. And I walked in and I what I thought was the front door and it was like this door to a refrigerator, which had kind of like these special plants in. Right. And literally, I just sort of got stuck in this refrigerator. God. And the owner of the shop literally came out and started shouting really, what do you think you're doing? They're enclosed and all this and that. And I said, please, please. And I literally got my cane out. I said, I'm blind. Like, I didn't realise. And then all of a sudden... She literally changed completely her yeah, tone. She's yeah. like, oh, it's fine. Like, let me explain. And then honestly, she spent the next hour describing every single flower to me. I was like, okay, this is a bit too much. I, I went home with my flowers. It was fine eventually. Um, but anyway, so the next day I had to fly back to New York because the, the doctors I'd met were in New York and mm. San Francisco. Mm. And um, I was I was flying Virgin America. Mm. So it was... an sort of an in-country flight so you didn't pay you didn't get food rather um and you just had to pay if you wanted some and I decided you know it's fine I can I can stick it out till I get there and mm. um, the guy next to me um was morbidly obese mm. and literally his his le- one leg was literally on top of my lap and he'd order him ordered himself like a seven course meal and uh, in all honesty it looked really good you know <laughs> I know we were talking about flight meals there yeah yeah but his first course was tomato soup. And I can't honestly remember like sort of visualizing it at, at full speed, but in slow motion, there was this slight bit of turbulence. And somehow this bowl of tomato soup oh, just managed no. to go up in the air quite seamlessly, turn round and land in my crotch. Oh, Nowhere no. else, just in my crotch, literally. And I was just covered in tomato soup in the worst area possible. Oh, it was nowhere else. And then <laughs> this guy just said to me, oh, my God, that was my tomato soup. And I literally, <laughs> he did not apologize. <laughs> he just said he was more worried about his starter. Oh, no. And so I had to waddle out into John F. Kennedy ha- Airport 
with a massive red patch in between my legs. <laughs> I was just dying a thousand deaths, honestly. Yeah. Are you, are you, so I need, I need to... I, I mean, I'm sure you've got another story that started when you were in JFK. Okay. This all started from the delirium that you were experiencing in ICU, which... Which you've got to get back to, um, but I just honestly, I'm just sat here listening, and I just, I just cannot wait for your book to come out because it's like Adam K on steroids. It really is, honestly, and it just, you know, brilliant. But <laughs> let's divert to. We'll divert. Di- we'll divert, divert back. So I think we should definitely come back to all your experiences with the other. Um, uh, were, they, were they visually impaired as well as um, uh, hearing impaired? Yes, yes. So I met one deaf doctor and mm. five blind doctors. Um, incredible. Um, yeah. You know, and actually it was the reaffirmation that what I was trying to do was really possible. Mm. And I was able to go home and, and say to my own medical school, look, mm. there's other people out there mm. who are doing this and they're doing it by doing things this way. Um, so, for instance, the one of the blind doctors I met, and, and I'm I'm really good friends with them all, and I really hope that one day I can go back out to mm. BUS and have a reunion. And he was just saying to me, he just he, he was so clever in everything I said to him. He just had an answer for everything. Um, absolute genius. And he just said to me, or rather I said to him, you know, what if theoretically I wanted to become a psychiatrist? Mm-hmm. If I can't read an x-ray, theoretically, mm-hmm. then I will never be able to be a psychiatrist, even though I will probably never ever look at an x-ray in that specialty. Yeah. And he just said to me, have you ever gone up to a doctor who wears contact lenses or glasses and asked them to remove them? Can they still insert the cannula? Can they still read the x-ray with precise vision? You know, Mm. can they still do this and that? The answer is probably no, Mm. but we don't see that as disability. And it's just really interesting because as soon as you see something visible, Mm. like a white cane or hearing aids, people just immediately assume that you are incapable. Mm. And they, I I think as a society, we are very used to kind of just being negative without sounding negative. Um, We kind of just jump to the the conclusion that things aren't doable. You know, we're pessimists. Um, And that's when I think that I don't, um, I don't, I don't feel involved in society because I'm actually quite an optimist. I say, hang on a minute, you know, there is a solution to this. There's always a solution to anything. Um, And I just think it's so important we pay attention to that because there are ways. Mm. Um, And then obviously when I was seeing the deaf doctor, even I was interested as to, you know, how does he hear not only his patients, but how does he hear things like the heart, the lungs, Mm. you know, the the bowel sounds Mm. through a stethoscope. And literally, it's amazing because I have one of my own now. Mm. Um, He uses a Bluetooth stethoscope. So it does not put anything in his ears. And it's literally just the bell, the end of the stethoscope. It's all high tech. You literally just switch something on your hearing aids and ta-da. You can hear someone's heart without even putting it anywhere near your ears. And I think it's incredible because people think I have super hearing. I just need x-ray specs now and then I am absolutely sorted. (laughs) But, you know, it is. It's technology. Mm. And actually, when people ask me, oh, you know, so what's your biggest barrier doing medicine as a deafblind person? Well, I say, well, actually, it's not my disabilities. It's people's ignorances. It's people's sort of unwillingness to to accept who I am um, and not being willing to sit down and say okay so how can we come up with a solution for this um, so it was a 
it was a very inspiring, eye-opening trip. Really I think gave me a lot of insight. This is precisely why I wanted you to come on the pod, not purely because you're breaking barriers by being the UK's first mm. uh, blind and, and deaf doctor, but because you inspire us and everyone around you to think much more positively mm. and to not limit ourselves. Mm. What you said about contact lenses, it, you know, it, it really does paint a, a true picture of how we think very um, pessimistically about everything in our lives. And I think we're trained to do that from a young age. And mm. I'd love to hear a bit more about how like your, your upbringing may have uh, encouraged you to, to be stubborn and to be more sort of like adventurous. It sounds like you are um, <laughs> very adventurous. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I, I think um, if we are much more solutions focused and actually what we want to achieve, we will eventually get there, mm. whether it be through high tech solutions, whether it be, you know, uh, building on the paths that other people have, have done, like the deaf and blind doctors that you yeah. met in the US. Yeah, and I and I think it's also just a, a cultural shift as well. We 100%. do need to, to be more accepting of each other mm. because until we do that, we are never going to, and I, I'm so sorry I keep using these puns, but we're never going to open our eyes mm. to the real possibilities um like sorry I I don't mean to do this but going back to my traveling like you know when I was sort of stuck in these situations like lost in a forest Mm. there was no point me sitting on the ground and crying because really that is not going to solve anything the only way out was to be optimistic and say right I'm going to carry on walking Mm. until I literally get to the end yeah. of a tunnel. Yeah. And it's the same concept for everything else in life. And Absolutely. for me, I apply that every day in medicine. You've just got to keep walking it. You've just got to keep going and you will eventually get there, no matter how rocky that journey is. And and I think this kind of represents my entire life in a way because hopefully at the end I'll get to this beautiful destination, which is I'm going to qualify as a doctor and I get to help people. But I don't think you can truly get to a beautiful destination without taking a really rocky journey. I don't think the journey is as simple, as beautiful as, as the final thing. And and that's certainly the case for me. You know, I've had a very up and down, rocky journey in life. But I wouldn't change any of that because, like I was saying earlier, it's given me so much life experience, which actually, okay, at the time might have been really traumatic for me, but in the long, you know, in the grand scheme of things, in the long term, it is going to benefit so many other people because I can give that empathy and I can give that example and I can share my experiences. Absolutely. You're a beacon holder for so many people. I remember um, listening to your TED talk and you mm. told the story of uh, the child who sat next to you with a disability. Yes, yeah. And he was, you know, naturally being... Uh, not ridiculed but he was being told he can't achieve what he wanted to do Mm. which is to to go into medicine yeah he'd already been put in that little bubble yes that little sort of like um well stereotype and it's all about tick boxes in society at the moment oh he doesn't tick the i'm able to hear and i just it made me so mad and and like i said i just i don't normally barge into conversations but i really did have to I felt like it was my place to say something. What did you say to the boy? So essentially this little boy called Tim came and sat next to me on the underground and he publicly announced to his his mother and the rest of a train carriage that he wanted to be... (laughs) Absolutely. Mm. Um, He must have been about seven or eight, I think, bless. Um, But he just announced that he wanted to be a doctor when he grew up. And I thought, oh, great, you know, in my mind. But his mum just laughed and said... 
but Tim, how are you going to heal the poorly people? And Tim sank down into his seat with disappointment. And I just looked to my side and I, and I noticed that he'd got hearing aids. And like I said, I don't normally barge into conversations. It's not a thing to do on the underground. People just kind of keep their heads down and don't talk to each other. Um, but I couldn't help but personally empathise with Tim. So I leant in and I pointed to his and my hearing aids. And I said, you can be anything you want to be. This is your superpower. And... Um, and I, yeah, I don't know where Tim is now, but I really hope that he takes that advice and he always dreams big and, and reaches for his dreams, really. I, I just hope that one day he gets to be the doctor that he does want to be. Absolutely. And I think one day he'll watch your story as well. And, you know, remember you were that girl on the train <laughs> who, like, told him to reach for the stars. And I think, like, it, it speaks very, uh, um, very much to the topic of your incredible TED Talk that I'll make sure I link to in the podcast notes of how we make um, judgments on other people, yes, but also on ourselves. We do limit ourselves. We're like, you know, I can't be a doctor or I can't, you know, run that Ironman or I, I can't do this because other people will ridicule me. Um, and on a macro level, you know, you are living testament to how you can actually overcome huge, huge barriers. I mean, the thought, if I'm being very honest, uh, and this speaks to my ignorance, I wouldn't have thought it would have been possible for someone who is deaf and blind to work in the profession because I'm limited by what I think a doctor should be able to do. So I'm, you know, I, I'm very much guilty of the same thing. And you are proving me and many, many others wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's and it's it's so good to to, you know, speak about this openly. Yeah. And I, and I think that for most people, it's not like in your case, it's not that you're being malicious it's not being like oh you just you can't be part of of this workforce it's literally just there aren't there isn't anybody else out there who is deaf blind in the UK who are in the field and so therefore we're just oblivious to it we don't we just don't know so you're right I think it's all about just making it a very open topic of conversation to to say look actually this is doable this is how I'm doing things and this how we can help other people in a similar situation to me, achieve their dreams in medicine. Um, because there is, and it's a spectrum, isn't there? You know, when you when you think of blindness, well, actually, it's not just either I see everything or I see nothing. There's absolutely everything in between. So, for instance, with my vision, I've got just under 5% in the left eye centrally and nothing else. I don't have any vision in my right eye. And that sounds really bad on paper. But then there's me going off. I, I go running. I go skiing. Um, I go traveling around. Okay, yes, I, I do get lost in a few forests every now and then. But, you know, I'm very independent. But if you saw that on paper, you think, well, I wouldn't be even get from room to room in the house. And it's the same thing with my hearing. So I am classified as having severe to profound hearing loss. But I don't sound like a typically deaf person. When I take my hearing aids out, I'm completely and utterly deaf, which honestly is the most advantageous thing ever. Apart from when the fire alarm goes off in the middle of the night, that's not so good. But it's And it's just about um, trying to help people understand what, that really means because I, I can just remember um I had a bit of a media storm before Christmas and you know doing loads of radio and, and television interviews and you know you get a lot of comments naturally and, and most of them were really positive but I can remember you know there were, there were a few people that you know just, just did not approve at all and one person commented on one of my interviews and, and bearing in mind it was a live 
uh, interview on national television um, face to face with a presenter. And he said, how can he how can I communicate with patients if I am deaf? Like, that's just not possible. But surely me having a face to face interview with someone on live TV wasn't that enough to kind of prove that I can talk, <laughs> yeah. I can hear, I can yeah. hold a conversation? Mm, so yeah. I, I don't normally, I, I, you know, I get so many comments, I just have to kind of just brush past the, yeah. the negative ones. But I did feel like I needed to just explain. Yeah. So I, I messaged him back and uh, kind of, I think I maybe made my point. Yeah. He didn't, didn't get back to me okay. after that. So I, was like, I okay. think every now and then, I think we have to indulge in entertaining ourselves and actually responding oh, to yeah, some of the yeah, negative yeah. comments. But as a general rule of thumb, like I've learned to ignore uh, mm. and to carry on with the mission and your your mission obviously is very clear. Mm. Um, but uh, I think it just speaks to, you know, <laughs> how measured you are. I mean, I don't, I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine the amount of negativity mm. that you've had in the past. And the way we speak about it now, and I think I should make this clear, is it's almost like you're over the hurdle. It's like you've got there, you're in medical school and you're on your way. Mm. Actually, this is something mm. you deal with on a daily basis. Absolutely. And from yeah. what you were telling me about, even when you went into medical school, mm. you had the um, uh, the acceptance letter and then you had this a rejection. Yeah, so I, I got an initial place at a medical school and I remember between getting my offer in April and getting my results in August, I went up to this medical school five times in person. And I basically just said, look, are you sure you can have me? Um, are you sure you're able to support me as, you know, a student with additional needs? Because, you know, I'm, I was being realistic. I knew that it was going to be way harder. Mm. Um but I just wanted to make sure that it was possible and that I was going to the right place. And all along, they were telling me it was absolutely fine. All the support was ready. Um, they were looking forward to having me. And so then I got higher grades in, in August and what they'd asked for. So I thought, oh, my goodness, brilliant. You know, I've actually done it. I am going to medical school. And I can just I can clearly remember the excitement. You know, you probably can remember those days where you go and you buy your crockery. Like I love my crockery, obviously. Um, your bed sheets and everything to go with the the pasty university halls. You know, everything. Um, and then a week before moving into accommodation, bearing in mind this was mid September. I literally just received a phone call one evening from this medical school saying, sorry, we've changed our minds. We don't want you anymore because you're disabled. And just like that, they'd put the phone down and I was left with nothing for a whole year. And I and I can clearly remember for about three weeks, I could not talk to anyone. I was so... I, I think I'd very quickly gone past the oh my goodness, I'm devastated. I was angry. Yeah. I was like, how could an educational institution discriminate like that? I mean, bearing in mind that I had, you know, so many times gone up to this medical school and said, are you sure? Are you absolutely 200% sure? And time and time again, they were saying it was fine. And then they said that the last minute. I just thought it was honestly... But then, of course, I remediated that by going travelling again. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just you talking um, about it, honestly, great. like... I'm angry thinking about it. Mm. I'm at, like it that really does make my blood boil. I, I mm. just so frustrating the fact that you've done everything in your power. You've checked with them again yeah. and again, and then for them to just brush you aside mm. 
with huge, huge discrimination. I mean, we won't name the medical school, but like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's embarrassing for for anyone, part yeah. of any institution that represents medics and, and, and you know, people, doctors. Just, people just come up to me and say, why don't you like take it further? Why don't you, you sort of like, I don't know, investigate why this happened? But then, and this was the point where, you know, in the three weeks where I was just so down in a dark place, my parents said to me, look, you know, and these, you know, my parents are my greatest supporters. And they've always said, you know, go, you know, achieve your dreams. But they were the ones who actually then sat down and said, look, well done for trying, but maybe this is a sign it's just not going to work. But me being stubborn, like I said to you earlier, I had this instinct to give it one more go. Now, I didn't want to take this up. I didn't want to sort of fight against what had just happened because I didn't want to be wasting my energy on the bad stuff. I wanted to be putting all my eggs in one basket and that basket was to get into medical school for good, Um, which I'm so glad I did because if I hadn't gone with that instinct, I think instincts are the very powerful special thing actually had I not gone with that I don't know where I would be now um but I was very lucky to get into medical school the year after I think that you know speaks to where you channel your energy right you could have channeled everything at trying to you know take them to court and discrimination Mm. grounds you would have had so many grounds to do that but instead you were like no uh, I'm not going to allow this to uh, destroy my dream. I'm not going to put my negative energy to that. I'm going to actually put my energy into what I believe is achievable for me exactly. and I'll make that happen. Yeah. And you are manifesting it by where you put your energy. And this is exactly why, to a much less severe degree, you don't want to waste your time replying to negativity no. in the physical world, in the social world, online. You want to put everything, all the energy into something that's going to further you mm-hmm. and help you achieve your your personal mission exactly i mean at the end of the day there are 7.53 billion people in this world there are so many places so many things to do so many years of life and i just think you know just make the most of it in a good way don't sweat the small stuff um and it and also you know why (laughs) why would i even bother trying to pursue something you know, tried to get back into a medical school, but are clearly not going to support me, even if they did change their mind. Um, you know, so I was very lucky to get into another medical school a year later. But but then again, you think that actually it was all fine and dandy from there, but actually it, it only got worse. And it made me realise very quickly that this is what I was going to be facing for you know, quite possibly the rest of my career. Um, And although it has at times really reduced me to the ground, the way I see it, I try, obviously I like to try and be positive as I can. The way I see it is that, you know, at least on my first day as a junior doctor, I am not going to crumble um, by the slightest, um, you know, sort of discrimination or or comment or, you know... um, so in a way, it's equipping me for the real world, yeah. but still, it's some of the stuff that's been said to me has been really unacceptable. And I think actually that's kind of when I really started my journey in terms of sharing my voice. So the TED Talk, the blogging, the book, um, because before medical school, I was like, I know I wasn't very confident, but actually the, the only thing that I did have confidence in was with who I was and what my disabilities meant you know I was I was totally fine with going around with my white cane um I was 
I love doing sport. Um, I didn't let anything hold me back. But then, then actually starting medical school was the point that I was reminded every single day that I was different to everybody else, but I was reminded in a bad way. Um, I can remember in the first term of medical school, I was called into a meeting and the meeting was on the first floor. And so I went up into the stairs and as I went into the room, the, the staff member basically said, oh, be careful of the corners of the tables. They're really, really sharp and we don't want you bumping into them and causing more paperwork. So this was in what, 60 seconds of meeting me. So they had already assumed that I was this clumsy, reckless person. And, and that was quite patronising. But I thought, actually, no, maybe they're just trying to, they're just you know, caring. Um, and I can remember having this meeting. And at the end, I really wanted to make a statement. So I ran down these stairs and I got to the bottom, fine. Um, and then the, the hallway was quite dark and I'm, I'm night blind, so I couldn't quite see where the door handle was. So very subtly, I just sort of skimmed my hand across the door um, to feel where the handle was. And this staff member was at the top of the stairs and basically said, and how do you expect to become a doctor if you can't find the door handle? And from that day on, I felt, so embarrassed to use my white cane. I can remember going into future meetings and not wanting to look at my phone because I didn't want to be seen looking at it like too close. Um, I didn't want to give away any sort of evidence that I was disabled and I was very quickly losing my own identity and it was awful. I hated it. Um, so I'd gone from being this person that was totally accepting of my own disabilities to to not just just wanting to blend in essentially um but actually since going to america yeah. i've realized that actually and it goes back to what i said to tim my white cane and my hearing aids are actually my superpowers and i need to use them because actually patients like doctors with superpowers not not as in being superhuman but just being able to use the very basics yeah. of what they what resources they have what emotional um sort of intelligence they have to use to talk to their patients and and it's great i mean i've had evidence of you know on i was actually on geriatrics recently for my placement and um you would think that i'd get the discrimination from my patients but actually my patients are wonderful yeah. it's my colleagues that i get it from wow. but these uh these elderly patients bless them i mean one one of them was i think quite delirious on on that day but he genuinely thought i was carrying around a drumstick mm -hmm which my cane. And he said, oh, you know, where's the rest of your band? I said, oh, I'll bring my band on Friday. I'll make some music on the ward. And then uh, another one thought I was seeking treasure, like oh. a treasure detector right. along the, the hospital floor, which was quite funny. And then I am, um, and this patient will always, always um, stay in my mind. And actually I talk about him in my book. Mm. Um, obviously I've changed the names and everything, yes, but... Yeah. He um, he was a palliative patient and I really want to go down palliative medicine. I just think it's such a special field. And he looked at me and he says, you're blind. And that was the first time any patient had said that to me because he knew what that white cane was. Not many people, surprisingly, know what a white cane means. Um, but anyway, I went up to him and said, yes, I am. You know, I'm visually impaired and this is what I can see, this is what I can't see. And we just had this really lovely chat. And um, it turns out that back in the day, he his job was, um, it involved installing the tactile 
road surfaces. Oh, you need to, when you go to a traffic light, you have all the sort of the bubbles on the floor. It's to tell you that you're about to approach a road or, you know, the stairs. And so he knew all about it. And and he was he was fairly weak. And in fact, he was waiting for um, a fast track home, basically, to, to die. And um, I just said, look, you know, and I unfolded my white cane and I put it in his hand from where he was lying in the bed. And I said, this is how you use it. So I was sort of swaying it from side to side. And oh, it was, and the smile on his face was something I will always, always remember. And, you know, for me, it's not the satisfaction from working out a diagnosis. For me, it's literally just making a patient smile. I think it's the best thing ever. And anyway, I said to the, the team, I said, look, I really want to do palliative medicine. So if I get any opportunity to follow this patient up, please, can you let me know? Because actually, it's really shocking in medical schools. We do not get much exposure to to death and dying through palliative um, care. And so I was very lucky. The hospice nurse got in touch and said... I'm going to be visiting this patient. Would you like to come with me? And I said, oh, absolutely. So kind of, it was actually my day off. And I was like, no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. I really, really want to see him. And went to the house and his family had come over and um, he was at the point where he was, it was like a, the active dying process, essentially. He couldn't open his eyes. He was, he was very weak. He wasn't talking, but he was, I think he was still aware that we were around so I, I held his hand and then I thought, oh, and I got my cane and I folded it up and I put it under his hand and you could just see his grip tighten around the white cane. And I just hope that I think he knew that I was there and he, he died the next day. Um, but I'm just so, so glad that I got to see him before. Um, and just and it just it just real it just made me realize actually this this white cane it is a superpower and actually I should be proud of who I am and and what I am and what this is and you know I I can't let people's derogatory comments you know bring me down I need to use it um, to to change perceptions in a good way absolutely I it's taken my breath away <laughs> just listening to that story um, and. Uh, I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> I'm going to have a minute, I think. Um, Crying, laughing. <laughs> Sorry, all sorts of emotions. No, today. no, I know. It's like, it's definitely a roller coaster uh, chat, you know, to, and to, you know, one thing that really strikes me is like, how on earth did you muster the incredible psychological strength to overcome the discrimination of and the ridicule of like not being you know someone saying you can't even open the door how on earth are you going to be a doctor those are like and and that's on the back of you having to jump off all those hurdles of like getting the high of the medical acceptance letter and then being taken being put back another year and yes having to go traveling you had some great times but then going back into the same process and then like you know on a daily basis just absolute grind Mm. like how have you developed that incredible mental strength and the you know the marathon the energy that you need to do that on a daily basis i think i mean i'm not gonna lie there's been times where i've really broken down and thinking oh my goodness can i really do this but i think it would be very unnatural and unhuman if you didn't do that. I think everyone has to have a cry. Everyone has to to feel vulnerable and weak at times. Um, it's totally normal. I think the thing that's got me through is positivity. 
and think that actually, okay, look at all the terrible things that have happened. Use that as a life story that will just give you so much more um, experience to help other people. And I mean, it's it's been tricky because uh, one of the because the discrimination I got actually I got a I got a few months of it just day after day after day, and this all began on my first day of full-time placement in the clinical environment so years one and two we were sort of in and out of lectures um, and then year three it was in the hospital um, all the way through and that was the the year that I'd recently come out of ICU in Italy where I had horrendous delirium I was on life support for three weeks I had sepsis and pneumonia and my parents had to sign for a tracheostomy Thank goodness I didn't have to have one in the end. Yeah. Um, but they were essentially told... A tracheostomy is where you put a pipe... A hole in the throat, yeah, yeah, like a breathing tube. And they were essentially told that I would be going home in a box. Um, so anyway, I had really awful, awful delirium, which I can come back to in a minute. Um, but I had to start placement a little bit later than everybody else. And But in a way, my mechanism of coping was to get back to medicine. I couldn't stand sitting at home um, and just kind of sitting there and not really knowing what to do with myself. I was really weak. I was being tormented by these flashbacks and not being able to sleep. Um, I just needed to go back. Um, but obviously when I did, that's when all the discrimination happened. I was thinking, oh my goodness, it is literally one thing after another. Um, I mean, with the going back to the delirium, seeing that we're on the topic um it's it's very different to having a nightmare because you don't just see it you hear it you feel it you smell it you taste it It it's literally like a 3d experience essentially and um it's so real it is real and for me it was kind of like this jumble of um being a plane crash spewed out onto a concrete runway and i can still remember the the heat of the concrete as i lay in on this tarmac but i couldn't get up i was like a jelly i thought that my jaw had dislocated and you know it was metal poles and you know, being and obviously in theory they were just it was the ventilator and the 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 tubes in my nose and and everywhere else and um i thought i was hanging off the edge of a building for days i thought i was at my funeral um didn't i didn't recognize my parents so i remember them saying who am i and i literally had dysphonia i couldn't tell them i could not tell them i thought i was in the year 2024 i didn't know who i was i'd forgotten i'd had a sister um, really, really, really bad stuff. Um, I think the only uplifting thing I can remember about the delirium is that I was convinced, and, and I was on holiday in Italy at the time, so for the context, I was convinced that this really good-looking Italian man had come to visit me every single day. And I had convinced that we'd fallen in love. And I got home and I said to mum, I said, I literally can't find Ricardo in any of my social media contacts. Like, he even had a name. And I was like, where on earth is he? Like, what was his surname? And my mum was like, I'm so sorry to break the news, but no one came to visit you. I was so disappointed. But, um, but yeah, so 
obviously, I, I, I don't really know when the delirium happened, where, because I was in two different hospitals. I had to be transferred to another one um, because my condition was quite bad. Um, but yeah, I my parents had to fly out um, to come and see me because obviously it was, it was um, quite a difficult situation. And unfortunately, they got themselves stuck into a bit of a... A situation too. They, I'm not sure if you heard about the Genoa Bridge collapse, but um, an, a, a big bridge in Italy oh, no, um, collapsed yes. and killed 43 people. Yes. My parents drove over that bridge two hours before it went. Oh, my <laughs> so they flew into Genoa oh, and got a hire car down to the first hospital. And the thing is, they had told me of their ordeal whilst I was on the ventilator. So I must have been still very delirious. Mm. And so I did. I had this, one of my deliriums was not only the plane crash, but also um, I was in this car wreckage and the driver hadn't made it and I'd somehow survived. And it was so confusing because I generally, when I came around and I was able to speak, I said to mum, I said, why am I in hospital? Like, what's happened to me? Um, I had no clue. I mean, I thought I was in a skiing accident, a car crash, a plane crash, all sorts. Um, but anyway, so I then had to obviously go back to med school. And actually, one of, like I said, I just wanted to go back. And I can just remember sitting at home, just twiddling my thumbs almost, and seeing the news. And it was just all negative stuff. And actually, I saw, I saw a clip on the news of these, these cars dangling off a bridge. And I just, I couldn't do it. I literally just had to go back and, and focus on something. Mm. Um, but then my mum had to stay with me for a few months because I was so... I couldn't even do my shoelaces. Yeah. I literally could not do anything, but I wanted to learn. And I was so excited because obviously being on placement is the most exciting yeah. thing when you are a medical student. Um, and I can remember my mum had to drive me uh, to my first day of placement. And in a way, it was quite embarrassing because I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm a 20-something-year-old and I've still got my mum driving me back and forth. And my mum has always been the person who said, are you sure you can do this? You know, she she really supports what I'm doing, but mm. in the back of her mind, she's also got her worries, naturally. Yeah, she's a mum. She yeah. doesn't want yeah. me to be let down. Um, but yeah, so I she dropped me off and I, I went into placement and then this is when the discrimination began. So I essentially had a doctor come up to me and say, imagine you're a patient. Would you want a disabled doctor treating you? Absolutely not. And I was sent home. And as I was walking out, yeah, as I was, I didn't know what to do because I thought if I if I stayed and went against this doctor's advice, I'd be seen as unprofessional. But if I left placement early because of what this doctor had said, I would also be seen as as unprofessional. So I was literally, I just didn't know what to do. Um, and anyway, so I was I was walking out of the ward. And another doctor came up to me and said, hang on, what are you doing with the patient's cane? So they had already assumed that because I had a white cane with me that I was a patient. And um, I just said, look, I'm really sorry, but the, the cane's actually my cane because I'm registered blind. And he looked at me in this in this like look of horror, which you probably think that I, I couldn't see, but I could tell. <laughs> yeah. And he just said, I don't want you touching any of the patient's. And so at that point, I just said, right, no, I'm going to go home. Um, and I was on sort of a phase return anyway because of my because recent of ordeal course. in Italy. And my mum came to pick me up. And I can remember being in the car. And for the first time ever, I was the one to say to mum, I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't think medicine's for me. 
just based on what these doctors had said to me on my first day. But here I am, two years later. I'm <laughs> yeah. still, I'm still doing it. I haven't, I haven't lost my. How uh, did you get out of that? Because, know, like, yeah. you, you, obviously, your mum's being cautious. You're, you've now like flipped into that, and I'm assuming, like, you know, you probably shook yourself up in your Alexandra fashion that appears to permeate whatever situation you're in, whether you're lost in the middle of a jungle, <laughs> whether you're undergoing delirium, you know, just... But that must have been a very, very low point. It was, yeah. And I think that was probably the first, because I somehow have this knack of being able to climb out these holes. I mean, I always do in the end. Metaphorically, but having a yes, yeah. but having a. I don't think I've fallen down any holes. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, just had to think about I that one. Past you. Um, just sort of like finding a solution to anything that I am thrown into. But honestly, I, I came home from that day and thinking, okay, so how am I going to deal with this? Because at the end of the day, I'm going to be on this placement in this block for another eight weeks. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to have to just put up with people just being really ignorant? Or am I going to have to put my foot down and say, look, this needs to stop? Um, and I did. I went to the medical school and I said, look, this has happened. But instead of supporting me, they just said to me, it's not discrimination. It's the way you're perceiving things. It's your behavior. And... I think that made me more angry. Oh my God, that makes me bloody angry. What the hell? What what, what else do you want me to say? Um, So in the end, I just kind of had to just keep my head down. And you've you've almost got to play the game, I think. It's pure victim blaming that. It's just pure, like, everything is on you, the person. Mm. It's not the system. It's not someone's negative comments. It's you. It's it's you're the issue. Mm. That is... I mean, and when you feel like that, you're walking around every day and you feel like you're the problem. Absolutely. It's a horrible thing to hang over you. But I like to turn, or try to turn everything into a positive. And that's when Faces of the NHS was born. So you may have heard of it. Um, and I'd really like to get you involved. I as love well, this beautiful segue. I really wanted to get into it. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was essentially it's a campaign that I started in, so I officially began it in January 2019. Mm. It's a portraiture photography campaign where I'm going around the UK and taking photos of anyone who works for the NHS, past, present, future. And they obviously share their story, a little snippet behind what they're doing, why they're doing it. Um, And it's with the hope that it can break down stereotypes of what it means to look like a doctor, look like a nurse, look like a porter. And instead, celebrate diversity. And I'm hoping that as this montage gets bigger and bigger and bigger, we can start to change. We can we can we can make a cultural shift, and just make the workplace more inclusive. Not just in the NHS, but in general. And I think by using it as a photography project, it can be it's, it's visual. It's very easily accessible for anybody. Um, and for those who can't see. Then you have the stories of those people who were, you know, part of the campaign. And and it's really really quite overwhelming because, I mean, I've already taken photos of 500 people. 500 people? 500 people, yeah. Wow. People including, you know, Adam Kay and and so many, um, Dr. Amir Khan from um, Studios Behind Closed Doors. So I've I've got amazing, like, so many guys on board. And I genuinely didn't think that it was going to be that like sort of successful and obviously then I started talking about that in my TED talk back in October so it's really lifted off the ground it's fantastic but it's like 
wow, I, ju- I just didn't expect it. So I use that now as my motivation to think, hang on a minute, you know, you should be proud to be different. Mm. And actually the people who give you negative comments, they're, they're not being horrible, mm. I don't think, most of the time. They just don't understand. And it's about educating. It's th- about educating everyone. Absolutely. I think innately humans are... Um, they're, they're, they are positive. They're, they are um, moral. We do have uh, an ethical backbone. But unfortunately, through the environment and the stigmatization of our roles, you know, we we act in, in awful, awful ways. Mm. And I'm, I'm so embarrassed to hear about your experiences within the profession that is meant to be the most caring, the most empathic, um, but hopefully you sharing your story and your project as well will, you know, allow us to question ourselves. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm questioning myself even this, like, would I have thought the same way had I not met you, had mm-hmm. I not understood your story? Would I make the same judgments? And if I'm being really authentic and honest with myself, I may have. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have said those disgusting things and i certainly would have said that but maybe to myself Mm. would i have thought how is this person going to be a medic but you are proving that small little voice in my head Mm. wrong Mm. and everything you do you're just such a rock star alexandra and you're a genuine (laughs) rock star and like i can't wait to watch you you know you said uh after you on uh lorraine and jeremy vine and uh sunday times and and a whole bunch of others, you were like just getting called whilst you're on placement. I'm <laughs> in the ward I was like, Please be quiet. I'm trying to talk to patients. <laughs> but I just see your trajectory being huge within clinical medicine and outside of clinical medicine on a grander scale. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if you choose, and it will be your choice to leave medicine if you're ever going to do that. You could be a comedian, an author, a photographer. There's so many things you could do, honestly. I like that. I like that kind of like, you know, wealth of choice. But I will always, always do medicine. I mean, the the thing that motivated me to do it in the first place was my experiences as a patient, but more so because I just, I just love people. I am fascinated by people and I just... I just love that emotional connection between human beings. Um, where that will take me, I really don't know, but it, it's it's exciting nonetheless. Um, I'll probably be gallivanting around the world in between as well. So, uh, so yeah. Great. Uh, I've got one more last thing yeah. uh, to give you. It's your birthday today. Oh. So, so I've got you two little things. It's a banana bread. And, oh my goodness. And a brownie as oh, well. Oh, so Ruby, thank you so much. I know it'll probably oh take you like goodness. three hours to eat this, so you can walk <laughs> back your doggy you share it with your mum later. But um, I just, yeah, I just wanted to thank you personally whilst on the podcast here, because I usually do an outro and everything, but for sharing your story, for being the person you are and uh, being just, a, like I said, an absolute rock star. You really inspired me. You, 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 like, I'm just thinking of all the different things and the, the number of times I beat myself up and, you know, uh, you just have that little voice in your head that says you can't do things. You are proving everything wrong about that and I just admire you for your work and I just can't wait to, to watch and support your journey going forward. Thank you so much. And, and like I said to Tim, you know, you can be anything you want to be you can do anything you want to do do not let anybody say otherwise and actually i've learned along the way don't always take no for an answer because if i took that from day one i would not be where i am today 
wow just wow i'm not even going to try and attempt to sum up our conversation here it just went through so many different emotions and um all i want you to do really is follow my guest on social media you can find her on instagram at alexandra elaine adams uh, and at faces of the nhs um all the links are going to be on the doctorskitchen.com please check out her ted talk again the links for that are going to be on the website give this a five-star review if it helped you or if it inspired you in any way i read all the comments i really really do appreciate the love the support and the sharing um and send it to someone who needs a little bit of inspiration a little bit of hope um a little bit of a feel-good moment um i really i think this this podcast is morphing into not only discussions about nutrition and uh lifestyle changes and, and the science behind it but also you know reminders uh to ourselves about being grateful for everything that we have in our in our lives um and that's all i'm going to say um have a fantastic day i hope you found this as inspiring uh, as i did as it as it was to meet alexandra and i, I hope that won't be the last time at all um and uh yeah uh, share it and uh, i will catch you on the podcast next time have a great day even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.